My name is Leslie Coburn. I live in uh, Georgetown in Washington, D.C. and in New York. I um, have just written my first novel after 30-some-odd years of being a journalist. And um, so I'm now uh, talking about my new book, Baghdad Solitaire. So what drew you to a novel after 30 years of being a journalist? Well, I think in the world of journalism, I did something um, unusual, which is I tried to do all kinds of journalism. I um, ended up being a documentary filmmaker for places like PBS Frontline, and uh, I also um, produced many pieces for 60 Minutes, but I also wrote uh, long articles for Vanity Fair with my husband, Andrew Coburn. I wrote for The New Yorker. I tried to uh, work in all different kinds of um, forms of journalism. And then having done that, I realized that uh, when you go and do a story in a place like Iraq, you really cut out 95% of what you're experiencing. The end product is a very narrow, very precise story, whether it's an hour-long piece or it's a 10-minute piece or whether it's a magazine piece. It's the other 95% that I really wanted to um, do something with in a novel, and I felt that um, the novel was the way to really bring people to this place, bring people to Iraq through these characters that they could identify with and take them into this crazy war-torn place, this kind of wilderness of mirrors, and um, both give them an experience of being inside a political thriller, but also trying to reach something a little bit deeper and making them feel probably for the first time that they were actually there in that place, discovering it. When you were doing your documentaries and your 60 Minutes and your articles, what kind of stories have you concentrated on over the years? What's been your obsession and your your beat? Well, it's really, you'll get it. I, if I tell you just what I was doing in different stories in Iraq, the first time I was there for Frontline as a correspondent and produced it. Uh, it was a film called The War We Left Behind. It was really trying to answer the question after the first Gulf War, what had it we actually done there? You know, it was a tremendous, it was a kind of video game war, and we saw lots of these extraordinary shots of bombs being dropped and hitting things. But what did, what did they do? What were the consequences? So that hour-long story really looked at um, at those things. You know, you talk to the pilot who drops the bomb. You get his footage of it. You talk to the people at the power plant. You talk to the kids in the street at the end of the pipe where the sewage is coming out now. You talk to the doctor in the hospital about the cholera that's coming because of uh, the effects of hitting what the Pentagon calls these critical nodes that really devastated the lives of civilians. Um, so it's really kind of doing a story where you're digging and digging as much as possible to find out what's really going on. I did a Vanity Fair story there, which um, the headline of it was a kind of extraordinary interview with Saddam Hussein's sons, who didn't talk to journalists, but they ended up, through a series of strange circumstances, um, 
inviting me to their table at a small little restaurant at the Rashid Hotel. And um, so being with these people, being with these um, crazy sons and uh, trying to figure out um, what was happening with the Saddam regime, um, who were these people, these black marketeers, these opportunists who were taking advantage of um, sanctions, for example. Sanctions hurt the bulk of the population, and it didn't ever touch the people right around Saddam who were really making a tremendous killing. So how did that work? Um, It's those kinds of stories, trying to look behind the scenes. And what draws you to places of conflict and war? Might I add, as I'm asking you this, you have three children, you're married, you have homes, you have a lot to protect. And at the same time, you put yourself in those situations, in those moments of history. Well, I think once you've experienced being in a conflict zone like that, and you see the really the desperate need of people to have um, some kind of outlet to tell their story, once you've experienced, whether it's a refugee, whether it's a village that's been destroyed, whatever it is, you you feel um, compelled. You realize that these places uh, do need a witness, and there are only so many people willing to do that kind of work. So you go back in, and you gain a certain amount of skill um, in doing it, and then um, you feel that it's important to tell these stories. And I think over time, it has been important. Um, I've done stories in you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, Cambodia, Zimbabwe, Colombia, Haiti, all those places. And you can imagine the kinds of things that really need to be said. And uh, when you do an important piece like that, it affects, it affects Congress. You know, I've had situations where Congress will suddenly release millions of dollars because of something they've seen in a program, or they'll shut down military aid to a particular place. These are all temporary victories, but they are victories. You said you pick up skills along the way from doing this kind of work, and I'm wondering what some of those skills are, and I'm thinking about people listening and who might be contemplating that kind of reporting. What are some of the skills? Well, there are all kinds of things. Um, There are the skills, for example, if you're plan, there are logistical skills. If you're planning to go into a place like Somalia, how do you get from A to B? If you're traveling all along the road, you have to pick up people from certain clans to work with you to get through roadblocks to survive in certain areas. Um, other important questions, like uh, if you're in a zone where people are firing weapons, you know, you need to recognize the sound of a particular, what does a mortar sound like? What does a rocket sound like? These things are essential to survival because once you you know the sound, then you can gauge very quickly, what should I do, where shall I go um, to be safe? Do you remember the first time you heard mortar fire? I do. <laughs> I, I think that there's a... Uh, where, where was that? Oh, gosh. The first time I heard uh, mortar fire was in Central America um, during the the Contra War. I think that that there's a, it's funny, there's a kind of a sense, uh, because I do 
you know, when I'm not in those situations, I lead a very warm and domestic life. I love to cook. I love my children. I love, you know, doing all those kinds of things. Um, it's like waking up from a dream once you go into one of these places and you suddenly hear the sound of that, uh, of a, a, a rocket, for example, which really sounds like it's ripping the sky. That's the best description I can give. And, um, and you suddenly, or it's, the, it's as though you wake up and you say, oh my God, here I am again. But um, uh, doing a novel, it's interesting because those in, in Baghdad Solitaire, there are scenes like that. There's a scene of a, a rocket attack. Um, there are several scenes that come from having had that kind of experience. And people do, when they read it, they feel like they're there because it's a very difficult thing to describe unless you've kind of been through it. And then it takes time to kind of find just the right words to, uh, to, put, to put the reader there. What's the story of your book? Who's your main character and what's going on here? The protagonist is a woman, and um, I really like her. She took, it took me a long time to, to craft her. She's a, a trauma surgeon. Her name is Lee McGinnis. She's uh, in Iraq for the first time, but she's had a lot of war experience in Afghanistan before she gets to Iraq. While she was in Afghanistan, she worked closely with a, a great friend, Martin Carrigan, who's also American. And they're both Irish-American. There's a real Irish piece to all of this. But Martin is a quite a well-known aid worker. He sets up big refugee camps. Uh, everyone in that world, the NGO, NGO world, uh, knows this person. So they've traveled together. They've seen a lot of things. They have that closeness that... Um, two soldiers in the same unit will have. So um, Lee Carrigan, my heroine, um, she finds out, she's in New York, and she hears that Martin is missing in Iraq. He's been presumed kidnapped. It's been several days now. She feels that although, of course, um, you know, the U.S. government in the green zone, they will have people looking for him, but she feels that she really wants to go and be there. So she arrives in Iraq she has a very tricky time getting into the country. Her convoy is attacked as she comes in from Jordan. Uh, she goes to the green zone, has people to see. She goes to see particular U.S. officials and says, look, I just really want to find out what you know so far about my missing friend. And they say, well, the fact is um, he hasn't been kidnapped. He's on the run. He's wanted for treason. So she's in this country on her own walks out into the street, back to the war from the green zone, and is really in shock. What do I do now? What does this mean? She really enters what I call the wilderness of mirrors, where you don't know who to trust. There's deception at every level. Was that official telling me the truth? Was he lying? Is it possible? And so that's the beginning of the trail. And she has to unravel this story. And she finds people along the way to help her. She finds a British journalist who she knew in Afghanistan. She finds an extraordinary Iraqi artist, a woman called Leila um, al-Bahri, who uh, is a very well-known artist and lives in this beautiful date grove right in the middle of Baghdad, um, who kind of represents 
the civilization that is is really being decimated by all these years of war and dictatorship and sanctions and um but Layla becomes quite an important person in the story. So she finds people along the way to help her on this quest to unravel this, uh, what has happened to her friend. And what's the title of your book and why is it called that? It's called Baghdad Solitaire. And once you read the book, you'll understand the meaning. It's, um, I, won't, I won't tell you the meaning because... Um, uh, it's it's part of the, of the you know, I'm, I'd be revealing the plot. But um, it's interesting. I mean, if you look on Amazon, there are a couple of reviews where they take on the name Baghdad Solitaire and they give, they give it extra meaning, which I loved. Um, I, think, uh, I think you have to find that out. Why don't you read some from the book for us? Well, this is a, a point where, as I mentioned, she'd just been, Lee McGinnis has just been in the green zone talking to U.S. officials, trying to, desperately trying to find out what's happened to her friend uh, Martin. Uh, they've told her that, in fact, he's wanted for treason. In fact, they've said, look, you know, if you get involved in this, you have to. If you find him, you have to tell us, because otherwise you're implicated as well. She's very shocked by all this. Uh, while she was in the green zone, there was a bombing down the street. In fact, it was the Tigris Hotel where Martin had been staying. So she's doubly concerned about that. Was he there? And this is uh, the beginning of that section. There was a pungent smell of modern life on fire. Synthetic carpets, plastic lobby chairs, fake leather briefcases, and rubber tires for burning SUVs. The black funnel of smoke from the Tigris Hotel hung thickly over Baghdad. Lee stood by the razor wire, hailing Sudun from across the traffic. He executed a U-turn at suicidal speed. She wondered what else the Republican Guard had trained him to do. The Tigris Sudun. She leapt into the car. The road is blocked. Just get as close as you can. I'll go on foot from there. She had hoped that Plummer would offer her security, lend a helicopter, open his files. Instead, he'd stripped her of protection. Martin was a hunted man, a terrorist. Lee wondered whether any of it could be true. Her dislike for Plummer was tempered by his last words. He knew her parents. They'd all served in government a long time ago. Perhaps some residual loyalty to them had made him want to warn her not to be naive. Perhaps he thought she could be recruited to help persuade Martin to cut ties with whatever faction he'd fallen in with. Who else would want to touch this now? The word treason was enough to scare away the aid community and State Department, anyone who should have been demanding that Plummer and his green zone friends track him down. Her jet lag was coming back in waves, sabotaging her efforts to absorb the information she'd just heard. Her brain kept shutting down. This is as far as we can go. Sedun had stopped at a roadblock where the barrel of a tank was trained on the car. Lee groped for her ID and forced herself into the street. The pavement was strewn with bits of metal and dollar bills. She saw a severed foot still wearing a penny loafer. This is not a local foot, she thought. She was filled with dread at the possibility of finding some part of Martin, a hand or a piece of scalp, something she would recognize. A palm tree in front of the hotel was hung with little clumps of red flesh like Christmas ornaments. 
One of the soldiers manning the barrier checked her ICS pass and waved her through. There were cameramen swarming through the wreckage. The man in the safari jacket from the Aleem had planted himself between a camera and the mess in the street. Lee watched him comb his hair and check the shine on his nose in a compact mirror before dabbing on some powder. She picked her way through hot fenders and broken glass to the yawning hole that had been the Tigris Hotel lobby. There was an electric razor on the floor next to an upturned room service tray and an abandoned satellite phone that started to ring. She kept telling herself that Martin was not here. The reception desk was too hot to touch. Hotel guests who'd lost pieces of clothing or were soaked in blood wandered through the scattered body parts looking for their glasses and wallets. An American contractor whose shredded arm was hanging from a string of scorched muscle asked Lee for help to find a medic. It was not the time to question anyone about Martin. I can help you, she told the man, and ran to Sadoon's car to collect her backpack. She returned to find the contractor faint and disoriented from loss of blood. Her own confusion, brought on by Plummer, began to recede. She needed to concentrate now. She knew exactly what to do. The contractor's auxiliary artery was gushing, and his hand had already gone white and hypoxic, starved of oxygen. Try to relax, Lee told him. You're going to need surgery, but I'm just going to wrap you up a little bit to slow the hemorrhaging. I'm going to give you something to dull the pain. I shouldn't have come here. Everything will be fine. No, I shouldn't have. I needed the money. Just sit quietly for a little while until we get you to the hospital. She gave the contractor a shot of morphine, clamped the artery, He would lose his arm. It was better than bleeding to death. I never want to see this place again. They'll medevac you out. At what point in all this work did you go, there's a novel here. I need to take all this that I've been seeing and that had to leave on the cutting room floor and doing documentary style, and now it needs to move into this other way of telling a story Where were you when that idea first kind of came to you, and then how did it build? Well, I think even before I went into journalism, uh, I was at Yale. I did anthropology. I went to Africa. I lived in a village. Um, I came out of that experience uh, longing for more, I think. But I also did English literature. I wanted to write. So how do you put all that together? I wanted to be Joseph Conrad, really, I think. And uh, I found that when I was starting to work, I was I found my places, I found myself in places like um, early on in Liberia, and of course I'd read Graham Greene's Journey Without Maps, or um, uh, Singapore again, you know, standing in the same place at Raffles where Conrad once stood. I really had I felt a tremendous affinity with fiction writers. But um, it wasn't until much, much later. It was, I was in Pakistan. Uh, it was 2000. And I was doing a story on radical fundamentalists. I was talking to a lot of people um, who were affiliated with al-Qaeda and to try and understand what made them tick and how they worked together. And I was in um, the military zone in Pakistani Kashmir in a town called Muzaffarabad, one of those towns where you have to check your weapon when you go into the hotel. 
And I found this beautiful desk, a beautiful carved wooden desk. And I saw it and I thought, I'm going to write a novel on that desk. And um, got the desk out. It was um, brought out by Mule and uh, finally got it back to Washington and kept the promise later, um, a number of years later, I mean, six years ago when I really started to work on this project. Let's hear some more. Now, this is, a, um, this is about uh, Leila al-Bahri, who is um, an artist, an Iraqi artist, a wonderful artist. Um, she's a sculptor and a painter, both. She's well-known. She has a, comes from an old Baghdad family. And in the book, her place, this wonderful garden she has, her beautiful house, it represents a very ancient civilization that's becoming more and more reduced as the war devastates this place. And Layla is trying to hold all of that together in her little garden. Lee comes to visit her. Lee's with Duncan Hope, a British journalist, and um, they arrive to see her. They found Layla in her date grove, long rows of palms bearing Kadrawi, Medjul, and Amerhaj dates dwarfed her lithe figure like the pillars in the temple of Karnak. She looked otherworldly walking among them. The moon was rising, casting shadows through the giant fronds, and Layla was talking loudly to her trees. Come on now. The termites won't kill you. Just think of them as annoying house guests. Ignore them. Hello, Layla. Oh, my God, Lee, you startle me. Sorry to interrupt. This is my friend Duncan Hope. Oh, yes, of course. A pleasure. I was just giving them a little encouragement. The bloody termites the British brought with them when they imported the railroad ties from India are a plague in my garden. They're eating the shrine in Karbala, Lee smiled. Well, we know these termites are not Shiites then. At least your palm trees haven't been bombed, Duncan looked on the bright side. Not yet, touch wood. Soldiers are bulldozing date palms all over Iraq, just in case they're sanctuaries for the resistance. Pretty soon Iraq will be naked. Would you like a gin and pomegranate juice? That sounds deliciously sinful. Duncan walked beside her. Your sister's the archaeologist. That's right. I know your mother, Duncan. She came to stay with us in Beirut. She has a dig somewhere in Syria. Isn't that right? Yes, near Aleppo. The juice is fresh from the garden. Thank God I have all of this because it's getting bloody hard to get what I want from the market. I'm growing all my own vegetables and lettuce. Duncan and Lee followed Layla in the moonlight along a path to the low stone house, washed in color like one of her terracotta pots. I've got beets, beans, basil, cucumber, aubergine, six varieties of tomatoes, squash, arugula, and sunflowers. I adore sunflowers, don't you? Yes. Lee was intoxicated by the smell of jasmine. It reminds me of Tuscany, you know, the way they plant the sunflowers in the olive groves, so as not to waste an inch of earth. The house behind the thick stucco walls was cool. Layla slipped off her sandals, and Duncan and Lee kicked off their shoes, thick with dust from Karbala. The floor was made of Layla's painted tiles, decorated with acanthus leaves and papyrus stalks. The walls were lined with books, in English, French, and Arabic. There were family photos, some of them dating from the monarchy. The al-Bahris had served as the ministers and diplomats of the king, who served at the pleasure of the British. 
The family's rise had started even further back under the Ottomans, when highly educated Sunni Arabs were allowed to prosper under the watchful eye of the Turks, so long as they did not entertain ideas of independence. On the wall, there were distinguished-looking men wearing fezes and medals. Ladies wore elegant Edwardian moire and lace over tiny satin shoes with ostrich feathers in their hair. Oh, don't look at that rubbish. It's all gone now. We're just beggars hunting for our next meal. And I hope you will be very pleased about what I found for you. Maskouf. Layla flashed a radiant smile. Fished from the tigress this morning. The boy was fishing well above the busted Rustamia sewage plant. It's clean and absolutely huge. Come and look. They followed her into the kitchen, which looked like it belonged in a museum. There were storage pots with wide necks big enough to hide a man, and a bread oven, black from constant use, next to an ancient and warped chopping block. In the middle of the room was a long, narrow table, hand-hewn from a giant cedar, worn with generations of hands rolling out flat bread and chopping meze. Rows of copper kettles, at least a century old, hung from the ceiling, and dried herbs were strung up everywhere. The smell of turmeric and saffron, cumin and cardamom, was overpowering, like a stall at the covered market. A huge black Persian cat sat like a pasha in the corner. That's Hammurabi, a prize ratter. He's such an efficient killer, he could have worked at Abu Ghraib. He lines up the plump little rat carcasses every morning just outside the kitchen door, so I spoil him with treats. The cat lowered his eyelids and purred. Layla picked up a serving platter, valuable, but obviously mended many times, covered in a cloth. Have a look at this. It was flat like a giant sole, a magic fish, Lee said approvingly. Well, let's make some wishes, shall we? Layla poured them drinks. Look at that juice, like a pigeon's blood ruby. I wish for electricity 24 hours a day. Layla maneuvered the fish onto the grill of the ancient aga and the smell of seared flesh and herbs filled the room. Hammurabi looked expectant. Why did, why did you decide to stay through the bombing, Lee asked. Why should I go? Who does this country belong to anyway? It took me days to clean the dust out of the house, and the noise made it impossible to sleep. I would get out of bed and just stare at the red sky full of tracer fire and anti-aircraft barrages and feel the earth shake from the bombs. Two of my neighbors were vaporized by mistake. The fog from all of the debris seeped into my bedroom. My bedside candelabra looked like a far-off lighthouse. I taped the windows, but there was still broken glass everywhere, and just as I'd tidied that up, looters showed up at the door. I gave them my computer and some of my best pots and one extremely valuable artifact from the oldest library in the world, and even fed them my last chicken so they'd leave me in peace. Then the U.S. Army turned up, shouting all of that hoo-ah nonsense, in hot pursuit of a dangerous terrorist, who I think was my electrician, under suspicion because of his white van and his toolbox. I spent a day cleaning the mud from their boots off my carpet. Now taste this. Layla put a forkful of Moscouf into Lee's mouth. God, that's good. I think Hammurabi had a small nervous breakdown. Layla had laid a table in the moonlight with homemade yogurt and cucumbers and mint from the garden, baba ganoush from her own aubergine, and grilled pumpkin with nutmeg. Lee looked up at the night sky and felt as though she was in a dreamscape of a Rousseau painting, the inky green date palms against the stars. Layla's pots him in the garden, like ancient Assyrian treasures, half buried in forgetfulness.
There's your hidden kitchen. <laughs> exactly. Hidden kitchen in Baghdad. What else do you want to make sure gets said, Leslie, about this book, about your work, about what you're thinking about these days? Um, I think that um, there's not much more to say. I think the the uh, I think the readings. I think what you've just heard probably tells you so much about what's there. I think that it's been a, a tremendous pleasure for me to work on this book and to write and rewrite and rewrite to get those images, to try and capture um, things as they were in a situation that's, you know, a lot of those people, the, the Laylas of this world, are now vanished from Baghdad. They're exiles. They've gone to Jordan. Some, unfortunately, went to Syria. Some went to France. There are few in the United States. So it's really capturing a world that is no longer there. And that, for me, is sort of the importance of the book, I suppose. In all of these uh, conflict zones, there are very interesting women. And so for me to be able to um, pluck from that experience of meeting these women and use them to create characters is what I'm very excited about now. I have, I'm working on another novel set in Afghanistan with a totally different woman character, but equally fascinating to me and I hope to readers. And I think um, there's something about putting women in these situations where they are. But a lot of readers, you know, if you're reading uh, Ambler or Le Carre or any of those sorts of people, the women figures are, you know, they, they're not the leads, they are the person you come across. And so to be able to alter that a little bit and put them in the lead position and to be able to see those worlds through the eyes of women, it's a little bit different experience, and I think it's very exciting for people. Women see things a little differently. I'll give you such an obvious example. When I went to Baghdad after the second Gulf War, uh, I was with... You know, I was with a couple of men, and they did not notice what was so glaringly obvious to me, which was there wasn't a woman on the street. I'd been to Baghdad before and had seen women everywhere in the street and wearing clothes just like my clothes, wearing fashionable little dresses and chunky jewelry and heels and having lunches, drinking wine. People forget that that was Baghdad. It was, although there was a terrible dictatorship, for women, it was they could work. They could. There were even, uh, you know, women pilots, women academics. So suddenly, all that was gone. Suddenly, there wasn't anyone in the street. And the stories one was hearing, and uh, as I arrived, was you know there was rape was rampant. Uh, there were women who had been political figures who uh, were being shot. It was a very bad time for women. But the men I was with didn't notice. So it's little things like that. Also, there's a vocabulary that women have, uh, like the vocabulary of the kitchen, like describing that Baghdad kitchen. We can see things that our coll male colleagues don't, often don't see. And uh, in a garden, what's in the garden? We know what's in the garden. We know those plants. We can recognize things. We can recognize spices. We recognize shades, uh, colors. Uh, um, 
we're kind of trained to see all of those things. And I think that um, that makes it much richer. I love that line that you read of a pot big enough to hide a man in. Exactly. It's, I just think that our, you go, <laughs> kitchens, our, you walk into a kitchen like that and our eyes dart around. You know, we're really interested to see how people do things. And so it's, it's, um, it's just having that eye for those sorts of details. And if you have a female protagonist, you can do it. Fear. How do you deal with your fear? Well, I think it's fear. It's an interesting question because um, in my view, if you lose your fear in these situations, then you really have to worry because fear is an indicator. It's, it's, um, it's, it's the alarm system. It's, the, it's sending you the message that you have to be hyper alert in whatever situation it is. And uh, so I think that fear, uh, you know, I'm in, in, any, uh, in any war zone, uh, I've always been afraid. And um, that fear is what suddenly you can hear better, you can see better, you're totally alert and ready for what might come around the next corner. And that really helps you survive. Thank you so much for coming in and for the conversation. Thank you.